Open your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, it, it's, it's in the same spot we were this morning. And uh, we are wanting to conclude our discussion we introduced this morning. For your sake, uh, it, w- it was best to split this into two parts because the more controversial of this passage is, is, is right here, uh, what we'll look at tonight. So uh, this is one of those passages in the Bible that are in the Bible. We believe it's in the Bible. We just hope no one else points it out, right, and expects us to follow. There's plenty of parts in the Bible we feel like that. Uh, But this is certainly one at at the uh, corporate level uh, that that is really challenging for the modern church. And yet uh, the late D.L. Dagg, uh, Baptist theologian uh, from the 19th century, I believe it is, argues that a church that does not practice this passage is not a true church. And it's been over the last hundred years that we've, we've just overlooked passages like this. So, so what do we do with it? Matthew 18, let's stand as we read verses 17 and 20. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Go Lord in prayer. Father, we ask as always, you open our, our, our hearts, we would receive our mind, we'd understand, our eyes, we see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, and our mouth that we would speak its truth, our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience. Help us to wrestle with a difficult passage, not just understanding it, but putting it into practice. What does, what does this look like practically? Um, and there's difficult questions here. So give us the wisdom you promise to us uh, that we may walk in your ways. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know what kind of childhood you had, but when I was growing up, whenever we had our family meetings, they would usually conclude with, Usually my father saying, son, this is going to hurt me more than uh, it's going to hurt you. I still don't believe him, right? Even as a dad, I'd I'd rather uh, be the one giving the discipline than receiving it. But at the same time, I I, I get what he's saying, right? That no parent wants to have to discipline their their child. No no one ever wants wants to do that. So in in an emotional sense, uh, discipline is, is something that is deeply Wounding, something that we don't want to have to do, but it is imperative that we be consistent as parents and carry out discipline. But I think if, if we understand the metaphor that dominates chapter 18, that the same can be and should be said regarding the church. The problem is we still believe that parents should exercise discipline. Chances are if, if you're at the Walmarts and you see a, a kid just running things and you think, problem with that kid Ain't got no discipline, right? And yet, in our churches, how often do we tolerate such undisciplined behavior? No wonder, then, American evangelicalism is a confused mess. Our theology is a mess. The way we live our lives is a mess. It's all a mess. So if we were to divide this portion of Scripture, verses 15 to 20, uh, into uh, two parts. We, we would say, uh, on, on the first part we saw this morning, Jesus is describing what we could call formative discipline. Formative discipline. And what, what we have here in verses 17 to 20, really verse 17, is, is what we could call corrective 
discipline. And so this morning we saw the formative discipline, right? Self-discipline, right? You're, you're, you're becoming more like Christ through self-discipline, much like an athlete or, or whatever it might be. So, so the goal is I should have the self-discipline to pursue Christ with, with my all. At the same time, I need the help of other people. And so there's the road that, that fellow believers is in, in fellowship serve and, and multiple witnesses and spiritual maturity serve. That is formative discipline. Right? But, but what we see here, in, uh, it starting in verse 17, is corrective discipline. Now, most discipline, of course, should happen in the first three stages. In an ideal world, an ideal church, a large majority of such issues are addressed right here. Oftentimes, they, they go unnoticed. Conversations are had, repentance is done, confession is given, people move on, right? And, and, and no one else really, really sees that, right? That, that's, that's, that's sort of the point. It's not that you, you can make private things always public. Or, or you, you keep uh, fanning the flames of public sin. You, you deal it all in, in a public way. But it is to say that, that, that most should be done under formative, but occasionally corrective discipline is necessary. I want you to think, going particularly over the book of Acts, we can look at the New Testament in general. What was the biggest threat in the early church? What was the biggest threat? Well, we could say persecution was a major threat, of course. You got people seeking you out to execute you, to get rid of you, to exile you. That's, that's a pretty serious threat. But what you'll find is where there is targeted, targeted persecution, there is often growth within the church. I think an excellent uh, – let me give you two excellent uh, modern examples. One is China. But one that we don't talk, like, talk about enough is some suspect – and estimate that the, the place where Christianity is growing the fastest is actually in Iran. Um, and and if, if we had any access to North Korea, you may find another example there. But, but we don't really have access to numbers or anything, very closed country. So, so it's very hard to tell. We do know there is a movement of Christianity there. It's hard to tell how, how large. So persecution wasn't a threat to the church, a threat to Christians. We wouldn't threat to the church. We could say doctrine, and certainly it is. Much in the New Testament is, 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 is showing us how to deal with bad doctrine, to warn us against false teaching. Yet even, even with that, what you have is through the, the apostles, though they are ridiculed and redefined and all of that, through their preaching, their ministry, and church planning, that the church still grows despite all of that. If you came to Sunday school this morning, we, we talked about some of the early heresies and the threat they've, they, they had on the church. Let, let's think about one that, that maybe we don't think about enough. One of the greatest threats the church faced was that there would be in the church false believers who came to the church with wrong motivations. Can, can I give you two biblical examples? One, one is, my, is, is one of my favorite stories in Acts. That's Ananias and Sapphira. In Ananias and Sapphira, what you have is, is Luke compares two individuals. One is Barnabas, who sells everything, gives it to the church. And then in the very next story, in Acts 5, you get Ananias and Sapphira, who sell everything they have. They claim they're giving it to the church, but they're keeping a good chunk of the piece of pie. What is it they want? They want the praise of others for their good deeds. Simon the Magician does something similar in, in Acts chapter 8. You remember Simon the Magician? He wants Jesus so he can get the power. Is it, Jesus isn't enough for him. He, he's got to have something with Jesus. 
And so what you get in Acts are these bizarre stories where judgment comes down on Ananias Sapphira and strong rebukes are given to Simon Magician and other stories like that. And the concern is that people may creep in unnoticed. People may creep in and corrupt the gospel from inside and thus really corrupt the church. Thus when sin consumes, informative discipline is unnecessary or unsuccessful rather. What we see in the New Testament is the apostles telling us that corrective discipline becomes necessary. Again, we, we would do the, say the same thing about our children, wouldn't we? When disciplining children, do we not always begin with formative discipline? Maybe we, we give verbal commands, pick up your mess, finish your plate, don't stick out your tongue, stuff like that, right? When I was growing up, don't throw mashed potatoes when I turn my back, son, right? That, that was a real conversation. I heard a comedian once. He says, when you have kids, you put words together and form a sentence you never thought could form a sentence, right? Like, don't fling your spoon with mashed potatoes and hit your brother in the face, right? That was, I still remember my brother really did that and just vroom, right, right by me. And the, 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 the evidence is on the wall. I undo it. Like, <laughs> it wasn't me, right? <laughs> you know? Anyway, so that, that would be verbal command or physical acts. Go to bed early, no more games, do more chores, stuff like that. At other times, more corrective discipline is necessary. When I was growing up, we got whoopings, right? We didn't get spanked. We got whoopings. Those were worse, right? We, we went okay with spankings. I had a babysitter who spanked, told us to go out and get the switch off the tree. She had a specific tree she liked, and uh, she was quite proud to tell my mother that we, we got a, a switch spanking, but, but we, we got whoopings growing up. Or maybe you can do the worst thing you can ever do a teenager, and that is take away their phone, right? Now, you talk about corrective discipline. Um, you know, my, my brother was one who preferred spankings, whoopings. What he didn't want is to be locked up in his room for a week, right? So if mom and dad gave us a choice, you could either get a spanking or you'd be grounded. My brother would say, well, I want to be spanked. He says, okay, you're grounded for a week, right? That, that was the way we, we rolled because mom and dad had already made up their, their mind. They were just toying with us. We do the same thing not just with kids, but with surgery, right? Now, if, if you go to the doctor and you say, I've, I've got a problem, does he say, well, I think what the solution is, just, just not even thinking about it much, is we need to cut you open, right? That's not what he does at all, right? But rather, he wants us to take more formative approaches. Uh, maybe what, the medical issue can be remedied by simpler, less evasive means. I had a good buddy of mine uh, who was a fellow pastor in Breckenridge County who, who uh, lost 100 pounds over the years. Uh, he went on the Atkins diet, lost 100 pounds. Incredible story he has, and, and still doing well. He's, he's not in Kentucky now. And uh, when asked, you know, why did you do that? He says, well, I didn't want to take blood pressure medicine. <laughs> I, I, just, I just didn't want to keep pounding on all, all these medicines, so I lost the weight. And, I mean, I'm off all that. You know people like that. We, we've had people in our church like that who, who, have, who have taken such, such decisions for, for the good of their health that didn't involve uh, anything evasive. Sometimes exercise and a better diet is enough. Sometimes pharmaceuticals work. But sometimes you do need surgery, and it's the only way to, to remedy whatever it is may, may be going on. We can apply all of this to the church. Sometimes self-discipline works. Sometimes accountability is sufficient. Sometimes small groups will get the job done. But sometimes the church must intervene. Y'all may remember a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I, I, I did a paper presented at the Kentucky Baptist Convention, um, a historical paper. I presented it about three or four weeks on Wednesday nights on the Great Revival of 1800 in Kentucky, 
uh, that started uh, actually in Carroll County of all places by an ancestor of mine. He planted a church called uh, Gent Baptist Church, still around. But out of that came comes the great Kentucky revival. You're probably more familiar with, uh, um, I had a migraine this morning, so my mind goes blank. It's over yonder that way, the, the meeting house. Cane Ridge, is that what it is? Forgive me. If I just say something wrong, blame it on medical issues and not me just not knowing what I'm talking about. So that, that's going to be my excuse, and I'm going to stick with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Cane Ridge gets, gets more of the, 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 the story, but, but really among Baptists, um, it, it happened differently. But in that research, I found that uh, churches did two things in preparation of revival. One, they prayed and fasted a lot, right? And you just find them constantly saying, praying for revival, praying for health of church, praying for our community, praying for Pioneer Kentucky, all that sort of stuff. The other thing they did, they made holiness a priority. So central was holiness within the church. You remember that you're living in pioneer times. You didn't really have a strong government because strong government was Virginia. Kentucky was a county of Virginia, and the governor of Virginia wasn't going to come to Kentucky. It was kind of difficult to get to. So you had to have a governing body of pioneer Kentucky, and that primary governing body was the church. So if you were seen out in public doing something ignorant, the church dealt with it. And that is how pioneer Kentucky, particularly among those of, of the faithful, uh, governed themselves. And in fact, they took this so seriously that, that if, if the church wouldn't deal with something, particularly if it was a pastor who's, who's out of line, and I can give you examples of that, the association would get involved. And we still do this today. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention is going to have to uh, uh, excommunicate a uh, church because of some of their recent practices at our next annual meeting. Uh, it was just, just announced uh, this, this past week. But they took holiness, corporate holiness, so seriously that they would rather close their doors for the sake of holiness and lose everybody than to keep them open just so they can keep them open. They took it very seriously. Now, what does the New Testament say about all of this? And, and, and we can start in this passage here, can't we? If he refuses to listen to them, so self-discipline, friendship, mutual accountability, tell it to the church. And by the way, you should note that is only the second time in the Gospels that church is mentioned. It's only mentioned twice. The first is in Matthew 16, which is the foundation of the church. And then in chapter 18, we see the function of the church. The church is founded on the gospel and is to promote holiness and worship and, and, and mission, right? And right here, it says that it, holiness is so vital to those who claim the gospel that, that we must deal with this issue. It's only mentioned twice in, in the entire Gospels. He must come before the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, an unbeliever. That sounds strong, but is it really all that strong? If a person will not self-discipline and make holiness their priority, if they will not listen to godly counsel from close friends and spiritual mentors, nor will they listen to the church by which they sit and worship in, then how can you not consider them a non-believer? Of course, we're dealing with heinous public sin here. It may make sense what Jesus is saying here. Even beyond this text, we can see what the New Testament says on this issue. First of all, the New Testament says the church must pursue purity. So we get in Ephesians 5, 27. Now, this is in the context of marriage, right? Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. But you remember what Paul does with marriage. He says the issue of marriage isn't really about you. Surprise, surprise. So don't spend a half a million dollars on your wedding because it ain't about you anyways. It's really about the church. And so in that context, he said that Christ might present the church 
his bride to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. By the way, that's the same language we saw this morning. Paul uses in Ephesians 1 that we were elected for the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless. Now he's applying it more specifically to the church. And don't forget, when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, there isn't a guy somewhere in Asia Minor named Ephesus. It's a community. It's a church. He's writing to the church saying, you, the church, y'all, as we would say in the South, are to be holy and blameless. You, all, y'all, are, are, are the, 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 the Christ uh, bride. And so pursuing holiness is the vital function of the church. Secondly, we, we see that the church must govern its own members. I, I can look at several examples. I, I didn't add this one, but consider in 1 Corinthians, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians, actually, particularly in chapter 5. But later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, why is it that you are suing each other? Why are you allowing non-believing authorities to govern your body? Why? You're going to judge the angels one of these days. You can't handle this, this small stuff. Learn to govern yourself. But let's look at other examples that uh, Paul and others will, will give. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Just scratch that out. That's not cool anymore. So we can just skip that verse, right? Judge not lest you be judged. Apostle Paul, judge those inside the church, right? <laughs> Don't you just love that? Maybe we should think seriously what Jesus means there, Matthew. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says that. Those of you said there, worry less about what's happening outside the church. Those of you on, on social media right now, let me repeat that. Worry less about what's happening outside the church. Care more about what's happening inside the church. Is this not to be a picture of, of, our, of, of the kingdom of God and the world that, that we await? Is this a more higher priority than, who, than all the drama happening in Washington and Frankfurt right now? Who said what does nothing to help you? But how we love one another and grow in holiness does matter. Or consider Paul in 2, Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Ouch. What an incredible language that is, Paul says here. That the church must govern its own members. By the way, me as a Baptist comes here and says, oh, look, the autonomy of the local church. This is why we don't have a hierarchical structure as Baptists. This is why we have those business meetings, my favorite part of ministry. Why? Because we believe, according to Scripture, that we must govern ourselves, not just in how we spend uh, our tithes, but that we may hold one another to a higher standard to be more like Jesus. Or consider Paul and Titus 1. For this reason, reprove them severely so, they may not be, uh, so that they may be sound in the faith. Severely. Not just a little, but severely reprove them. Thirdly, what does the New Testament say on the issue of church discipline? Third thing it says is sin brings shame upon the church. Again, we'll be spending a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 5 here. It says, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man have, has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The language here is striking. He said, look, you're in Corinth of all places. Corinth then would be like, I don't know, Berkeley now, Las Vegas now, New York now, right? It's, it, it was, the word Corinth became a term um, implying 
of debauchery. It's the cleanest way I, I can put it. Um, and, and so he's saying, look, we're at the center of this stuff, and they don't even tolerate what you guys are tolerating. But it's pretty straightforward how they tolerate it. Like, well, you know, Jesus, just love. You know, we're just going to tolerate everything around here, and it's okay. It's okay. Hey, hey, you know, just, just your truth. Follow your heart. Yay, little mermaid, right? It's pretty simple to do that. What does Paul do? Paul comes here and says, no, 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 no. That ain't going to fly. That ain't going to fly. You should be ashamed. Every single one of you should, should, should be ashamed. You can't tolerate this, this sort of stuff. Wow, because... Because sin brings shame upon the church. We talked about hypocrisy this morning. Fourthly, unchecked sin will saturate the church. Paul will say later, um, after dealing with this man who has his father's wife, probably stepmother, he says, your boasting is not good. It never is. Do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may, uh, you may be a new lump and as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I love the theology there. Notice he's pointing them back to the cross. You've, you've, you've got to cleanse out the old lump. He says, so, so what you're doing is, is once you tolerate a little bit of sin, you're going to tolerate a lot of sin. If you don't believe me, look at, look at the history of America over the last 50 years. What was unthinkable before is, is unthinkable now. Um, and and we, we, we just tolerate it. And then once you tolerate it, something else has to come along the way. Because the old thing isn't as much fun as it used to be. This happens within the church. By the way, if you were to study theological liberalism, you'll find this. It all starts with the need to be accepted by the broader culture. We can be cool like, like, like they're cool. And if they think we're cool, then, then they'll want to love Jesus like we do. So what do we have to give up to be cool? Let's start with the virgin birth. See how easy that was? But then you discover, well, the virgin birth isn't the only thing the world hates. They don't like the bodily resurrection. We can get rid of that. It's not just the bodily resurrection they don't like. It's all miracles. Well, better get rid of them. It's the doctrine of creation. We, we, we can get rid of that. We can rationalize our way around anything. Before you know it, you don't even have anything resembling Christianity or even theism by the end of it. Unchecked sin will saturate the church. Fifthly, corrective discipline is restorative. This is, this is really where, where we get tripped up. The man discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you, you, you got to deal with this cat, right? This, this, this is ridiculous. The fact that I'm even having this conversation is the problem with your church, okay? we we, we got to deal with this. He says, the, but the reason you want to deal with that is for the sake of his own soul. And so what we get in 1 Corinthians is discipline this fella. What we get in 2 Corinthians is the hint that he's saying, enough is enough, bring him back in. That, that, that discipline has brought with it restoration. So in 2 Corinthians, it says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. They must have had a business meeting. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Isn't this why you discipline your kids? You say, I'm sorry, child. You just crossed a line, and you shall never return. That's not, not the whole point, is it? It's to say, look, look, this issue is of such importance and so serious, we must practice corrective discipline. But you need to know you are loved. You are loved, and our goal is restoration, and you're good. That's the point of, of all discipline, formative or corrective discipline. Paul will say in Galatians 6, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too may not be tempted. By the way, that's Galatians 6. He just gave us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. He mentions there faithfulness and self-control. All of these things are, 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 are 
are connected. Discipline is to be restorative. Now, let's be clear. When we talk about church discipline, what do we not mean? I think maybe we should start there. The fact that the Bible promotes this, I think, is quite evident, Old and New Testament, because our primary concern is New Testament. What does this not mean? Well, first thing it doesn't mean is proactively look to expel members. I think there are two constant extremes here. One is, is not addressing sin and allowing it to metastasize. If, if you have cancer cells in, in your body right now, not addressing it does not fix it. Likewise, if your car is making a strange noise, it's making a strange noise not because it's functioning properly and it's going to fix itself. You have to address the cancer. You have to address the, the mechanical problem. You have to. But so many of us, perhaps because we're, we're motivated by the fear that we're going to collapse as a church, and so, so we just brush things under the, the rug. I've seen churches where, where that was their policy. And can I tell you what happens? In 2, 5, 10, 20 years, everything explodes. Because eventually there's no more room under that rug. And this is a real problem. This is why, if you do this in your marriage, is what's going to happen. You keep sweeping things under your rug and not having a real conversation, not dealing with confession, repentance, and forgiveness in your marriage. Because what's going to happen? You have an explosion and good luck picking up that mess. The same thing happens in the church. This is where you get splits, where people care about personalities. Because it was never about Jesus. It was about committees and traditions and personalities. What good is that? So there is that, that, that one extreme, right? Well, if we were to practice that, we, we would empty the church. Really? If anyone leaves because sin is serious business of the church, then it wasn't a believer that left, right? If you were to leave this church because someone hurt your feelings because they loved you enough to tell you this behavior is unacceptable according to Scripture, you're the problem. Right? Isn't that what we believe? Surely it is. But don't worry, within the next year, we'll have some church hoppers who will do it anyways. Because it's been like that ever since 1962 in every other church in America, right? The other extreme is to seek out people to discipline as a badge of honor. I've, I've got enough pastor friends, and I see both of these, these extremes. And what you do is those who don't practice discipline receive with open arms those who do practice discipline. And you're thinking, well, well, why don't you have a conversation with our sister church and say, why is this person leaving? And I had a conversation with someone this week over something like that. This is an issue we need to deal with. Can we restore these members back to your church? Another thing we don't mean by this, people under discipline are unwelcomed in worship. This is really where people get confused. We as a church welcome all comers of all stripes. We beg everyone, members and guests, to lay their burdens and sins at the cross. And so what you see here is when Jesus says they are to be like a tax collector and a Gentile to you, that is not to say, wipe my hands, dust the, the, the dirt off my feet, and move on. You're done with them. But rather to understand what this person needs from the church and from its members is the gospel, evangelism. The point is, kick people out of the church and say, well, you know, we're done with you, but rather to, to mournfully say, we beg of you to repent. We see no signs of, of, of salvation in your soul, and that concerns us. Be mad at us if, if you must, but we will not cease until you repent and embrace the gospel truly this time. It's not about kicking people out. It's about restoring those who are in. So what, what does all this mean? 
First of all, it means if, a per, if, is, is, if one refuses to repent, the church must intervene. I think that's very clear in, in the Scripture. The church must be involved. Galatians chapter 6, we, we read verse 1, but later he'll say, carry one another's burdens. The church must be involved, right? Isn't this the whole point of the church? hope you're not here because you love committees so much. Right? I hope you're here because you want to leave here each and every week and each and every day closer to Jesus because you're around other believers. Let that be our goal. Secondly, throughout history, such discipline involved membership removal. This is why, not to sound like a Southern Baptist, but I are. Uh, membership is important. Not all denominations practice membership. But at the, at the end of the day, this church is responsible for those who claim to be its members. If that doesn't scare you that the majority of people who claim to be members of this church, you and I could not pronounce their names right now. Can't. That's a problem, isn't it? A lot of people on church rows are involved in a local church. So discipline has often involved membership removal. Why? Because we attach membership with faith. Regenerate church membership. Those who believe in Christ attach themselves to a local congregation for the good of their own soul. And so those who are inconsistent with believing in Christ are inconsistent with, with membership. Thirdly, it means proactive evangelism, not excommunication. So the word like excommunication is a perfectly fine word, but, but it's been Catholicized. Is that a word? I just made it up. Call Webster. And by that, I mean that, that when we think of excommunication, we think of damnation to hell, right? You know, because the Pope has that power, apparently. But that's not what, we, what we're thinking here. What we're thinking more of is, as we said, there is a need for repentance, for salvation. And then the church has, has agreed that this is a real issue here. So let us address it. This is what we mean by, by church discipline. And it's right there in the text, isn't it? It's consistent with the New Testament, isn't it? Remove such a person from your midst. You, you should mourn over this and then seek to restore them. We'll have more to say about this next week when we conclude chapter 18 because it's all about forgiveness and restoration. Finally, what happens if we disobey this command from Christ? What happens if, if we say, well, you know, can we just skip it for now? What if we did that? What does that mean? Four points, and then we'll, we'll close out. First of all, we will be living in sin, and that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable, isn't it? Jesus says, do this. We say, well, maybe next time. We don't want to be living in sin. If it's unacceptable at the individual level, Surely is unacceptable at the corporate level. Secondly, we will diminish the call to obedience. If we call people to repentance publicly but are unwilling to do it privately, what does that say about what we really believe about the gospel? We will be living in disobedience and we will diminish the call for others to live in obedience. Thirdly, something we don't think of, we will harm victims. Can I give you just, just one example? Because I've addressed this uh, in other contexts, uh, this directly. Let's say you have a couple in the church and, and one of the spouses has committed adultery. What if the church doesn't address that? Is that a problem? Yeah. Is that sin? Yeah. Is it of a public nature? Yes. Because what will eventually happen is the judge will find out about it. And I grew up in a small town. That goes into the local paper on Wednesdays. This is public. This does affect the church. 
You have open, unrepentant sin. So let's just say, well, we don't want to, we don't want to offend anyone. They tithe a lot, right? That's usually the way it happens. What did you just do to the victim of that marriage? It's not love you're showing them. Much in the same way, isn't that how we approach justice? If a crime is committed, you say, well, that's okay. They're really good taxpayers. What did you just do to, the, to, to their victims? Isn't the other spouse a victim of this sin? Doesn't sin make others victims? I've pounded this, that, that sin is a private. It affects other people. And so if the church ignores it, they've sided with the, the sinner and not the victim. That's a problem. Fourthly, if we do not obey Christ's command, we will practice church discipline in the reverse. I, I think this is a profound point that, that's uh, going over this week really just stuck out to me. I'm going to quote the late Herschel Hobbes. Anyone remember Herschel Hobbes back in the 20th century? Uh, uh, commentator, Southern Baptist, um, wrote this. The usual practice when we see a Christian brother living in sin is to tell everyone but the one who is at fault. Doesn't <laughs> this sound familiar? We talked about that this morning, right? It's called gossip and God hates it, right? <laughs> That's probably the only thing you're going to remember all night, right? Uh, it, gossip is, is evil. In so doing, we help him, not at all. And we do harm to the entire Christian fellowship. Sometimes the widespread gossipers' reports have no basis of facts. But it will be reported anyways. And this is compounded tragedy. Indeed, in fact, the gossiping may even be the greater sin. We do that, don't we? Afraid to confront the sinner, we become sinners ourselves. And we want to drag everyone else into our sin. Can you believe what happened? Did you see what someone else posted? Can you believe what someone shouted out in middle Sunday school? I just can't believe it. I'm telling you, I've, I've, I've just been watching them, and, and I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. It's the opposite of church discipline. Discipline starts with going to the one who is guilty. To disobey is to go to everyone else other than the one who is guilty. That is unacceptable. Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 18. I, I didn't overlook it. It's still there. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Not language we use in, in, in 21st century much, but it's the same language used in chapter 16. I say to you, are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Whatever you bind on heaven, be, bind on earth, be bound in heaven, and so on and so forth. What he's doing is he's giving authority to, to the local church. Remember, you, you have the foundation of the church, the gospel, and the function of the church. That is holiness. But then notice he goes there in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So let me tell you how we usually translate this. You set up an event at the church, two people show up, and someone inevitably say, well, the good Lord say it. Two or three are gathered, I'm there with you. Now, can I just deal with that? I've not done the misquote verses for a while. We'll have to bring that little series back. But this will certainly be one of them. Uh, let me just deal with that. God is always with his church, right? When I grew up, I thought God lived in the church because we called it God's house. I was wondering what room did he sleep in? Was it my Sunday school class? You know, uh, well, God is omnipresent. He's with believers. Your body is the temple of the Lord, right? We, we get this. But what's the context of this language? The context is discipline, holiness, 
When the church makes holiness a priority, there you will find Christ in his saving gospel. There. That's where you will find it. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them. For two or three are gathered in my name, I'm among them. And the context is discipline, holiness, godliness. So so central is holiness that Jesus assures his obedient church that when the church pursues it, he is with them. And so it means the opposite is true. When the church does not pursue holiness, God is not in their midst. God is not in their midst. And given the brokenness of the world, the last thing the world needs is a broken, unrepentant church. So let us all pursue holiness together until Christ returns. And if you want to see revival, let us start here. Let's pray.